Hello and welcome back to the podcast. This episode is a sort of end of the previous weeks. It, previous weeks have been like a feature length run and this interview just ended up being a bit more short and sweeter. This is when this is with an author and a published author called Rosemary Richens where we talk about dyspraxia, something which we both have and something in which I try to delve in and ask her about what, what she finds dyspraxia is and as he is somebody who's researched it for her blog and her book that explores it on her, her book that you can buy and there will be a link to where you can find her book uh, which is stumbling for like uh, something about dyspraxia in the title I couldn't rem- remember top of my head as I haven't got any prompts or a script up ahead of me while doing this recording as I'm recording this intro on like the uh, like 7pm on the Sunday that it goes out with who I was to spare as last night weeks was previously like quite quick up in a few moments up to the upload and this week I managed to edit it in time and do it over a separate period of days which I'm planning on doing it for next week's interview which is with Lola Louise Maria it's going to be more planned ahead of now has got that interview and Christmas special idea planned coming up for, for will be uploaded on Christmas day then you'll have in between Christmas and New Year there'll be the uploading of the uh, crossover episode I recorded with uh, Mason Miller it's on your, his podcast feed, you can find the episodes then and it's going to pop up on my feed over the Christmas and New Year period. Then we'll be chatting to Severgene Harvey, who you know as Agony Arty, dropping on New Year's Day. So there will be plenty of content still coming up for December. For December you can hear a lot of the podcast and plenty of interviews chatting on a wide range of issues. And, and I'll tell you on the podcast right now that on the 8th of January there will be a chat I with... Apologies for that, I was the start of the interview it's just creeping in as I accidentally pressed on that button as I said. On the start of next year, in the 8th of January, will be the, the second episode in the new year will be with Kevis Eleanor talking about ADHD and autism and dyspraxia. That interview is to be recorded shortly. And as I said, now this is... an. The next interview in the rest ep- today's episode, as I said, is with Rosemary Richens, which is coming up right the second. I am Rosemary, and I am a writer, editor, and author who all my work is in the area of neurodiversity and disability and mental health. You work in the neurodiversity and neurodivergent journalism as with disability and mental health. And in this interview, I want to chat to you about your own personal journey with being neurodivergent. So let me let's tell tell me about your neurodivergent conditions. Oh yeah, well I was diagnosed at the age of four with dyspraxia, and uh, very soon after that sensory processing issues and hypotonia. Yeah, it, it was in the 90s, so there was not really that much awareness. It was really the beginning of there being 
the term being really new of neurodiversity. I was diagnosed in Canada and there wasn't really much awareness. Autism, there was much more so and ADHD, but not so much dyspraxia. Do you think that has helped you pick an interest in reporting and doing journalism in that area? Yeah, I've always had a natural curiosity about the human brain and I've had to so much get to know how that works for me. I've always been passionate about the world being a better place and language and writing things down has always been the strongest way for me to do that. Excellent, it's good to hear that, and you've got a sense of reprocessing disorder, dyspraxia, and hypotonia, asking you about how those conditions got noticed, and how others were able to understand your mind first, before you began the journey to understand your own mind and neurodivergent conditions. Yeah, I was very young when I was diagnosed. There's only so much I remember, but as far as what my parents told me and all the medical documents I read when I was writing my book said, I was learning things at a slower pace. I was learning how to walk. I was learning how to read at a slower pace. It was after a long, long period of time of going to the doctors a lot and getting a lot of MRIs, a lot of blood tests, and that eventually came to that conclusion. What did they originally thought it could be another condition? And do you think sometimes of like a condition like dyspraxia, because like it's uh, phys- challenges in doing physical tasks, do you think sometimes that can end up being looking like other conditions? Yeah, I think you're very right about that. As I get older, I really wonder if there's so much more than just uh, the dyspraxia because it's really interesting work working from home because I really had to get to know my own work habits and what my limitations are for focus. And I really have my questions of maybe there's some ADHD there, maybe there might be a little bit of autism there. I've really been curious about wanting to explore further. Yeah, can imagine that because like with conditions like sensory processing disorder, I know like a lot of traits will overlap with autism because a lot of sensory processing is huge part of what autism is. So, like, I understand that curiosity right there. And where it comes. So, how would you say, like, to, like, being a child, to, like, being a teenager and now to adulthood, has, like, your conditions, dyspraxia, affected you then over the years? Yeah, I grew up in a system that didn't really understand it too well. So, I think a lot has been lack of understanding and just that people see me as like a perfect quote-unquote we both know that's like a very narrow way of looking at it but people see me as a very functional person people see me as getting by on the surface so really it's hard to get support and I need support because people are like oh well you don't seem to so really a lot of the struggles were just trying to get people to take it seriously just trying to get people to like get the reasonable adjustments that I need yeah, I can see that because, as I said, if you like, seem like to be a bit more able or capable by some other people's understanding and without understanding yourself, as thing is, like with being dyspraxic, even though like some of the traits might look a bit more physical and with hypotonia, there's like that feeling there that it's still an invisible disability and that if you see your functioning, like then that's the part of being invisibly disabled 
then that can impact on how much support you'd be able to get. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And people want to have proof. And that's so hard to provide because there isn't really a visible on the surface way to show that. Yeah, so, like, how do you think, like, the barriers to getting support and, like, being seen as being able to function more than you probably need help, has that impacted your mental health? Oh, well, it's a big part of why I went to self-employment, because it was so hard to deal with people in an upfront way, in an office environment, a conventional environment. Yeah, it's impacted my mental health where I get overwhelmed very easily. I have to very like carefully control how many calls I'm doing every day, how many deadlines I'm doing every day, and also still be an adult in an everyday sense of the word and remember to eat, remember to shower, remember to do all that and juggle everything. And that gets very overwhelming sometimes. And that's big on my energy. That's big on my focus. And it can cause a great deal of anxiety. Yeah, I can understand that as causing a great deal of anxiety. And I guess, like, probably what some people don't understand is how these challenges and struggles have been dyspraxic on the word diverge and then struggled on your, like, you know, mental health, and then you can cause you such burnout and fatigue. Yeah, fatigue, focus, ability to prioritise tasks when there's too many in front of you anyways. that That's a big part of things. How have you managed to, like, get on and, like, find your ways of adapting with, like, familiar challenges with being dyspraxic and, like, neurodivergent? Yeah, I've had to really, a lot of technology has been really helpful. I track deadlines very carefully on things like whiteboards. I set all kinds of reminders. I have to only really do a limited amount of stuff per day. I, my uh, spouse has type 1 diabetes. So the real beautiful way that balance balances with neurodivergence is it's a very routine dependent uh, condition and we both work from home. So I feel like that so much balances things out and still makes it so that there's always a sense of you have to eat at a certain time, you have to do certain things at a certain time. And to explore in this interview, like, because you like wrote a book on it, so like, I know like I'm dyspraxic and so I would understand this, but like with this podcast, I want to raise awareness of things that people may not understand about when trying to like educate and inform people from neurodivergent people's experiences. So from your understanding and from your experience, what is dyspraxia? Uh, well, I, I always describe it as sort of a disconnection between the body and the brain of how you organize and process your environment and how you respond to movement-based instructions. It's, I always consider it, I use, always use the analogy of old school internet, like dial-up internet and that like it's a delay in figuring out that you might have to turn right over there and there might be a bit of disconnection delay in responding yeah and it's like you like forget signals by the next time you repeat that task again and how to like forget or plan out a task because when you're doing it you can forget certain things make all piece up and come together what has you like been experiences of like being a dyspraxic and having hypotonia 
Oh, well, it's really been interesting lately because I have much more of a travel-dependent lifestyle. Now, I live in a much more higher sensory environment. Really, it's in a context. I've really had to be very kind with controlling how much I am taking in every day. And that can be really tough, but it has really meant that we have had to choose very carefully somewhere quieter to live so that like there's a sense of control over how much sensory intensity we are taking in every day. I suppose it's probably like that overwhelm and the sensory overwhelm, even though you said you have sensuous, sensory processing disorder, I guess some of that and, you know, like how, how to balance out previous experiences in the workplace and the challenges of socialisation, whereas as you said, picking up so many phone calls in a day, I guess some of that is where you started to question you could be autistic or have an ADHD, is it? Yeah, you know, I really find, I'm starting to find not enough people look at it in the context of all the different types of neurodivergence. They just look at it in terms of a very narrow part, and that's really what made me question it. Yeah, so like, well, for, for you so far, it's been hard to like, pe- like separate different types of neurodivergent conditions and how that experiences in, in your brain yourself. I think when people are starting to learn and understand about neurodivergency, then it becomes, it's like difficult because of like trying to piece together what separates and di- like distincts each one apart from each other. Yeah, exactly. I think you have a good point there. So I guess it's like some things, like I guess you have found difficult distinguishing what could be a dyspraxia, what could be like maybe possible autism and sensory processing disorder. I guess sometimes, like what, you know, like what could be one condition or another, have you found difficult like in understanding that yourself? Yeah, especially because I was diagnosed so much in the context of an environment where really I felt that so many of the medical practitioners didn't really, weren't so sure themselves. Ah, right. So, like, since you were diagnosed when you was younger in the 90s, and, like, we talk about what is this perhaps, yeah, but what do you think, like, from when you was a young child, what did you know when you got diagnosed and, like, you was school and, like, as a school child? What did you understand about dyspraxia and what do you think your teachers understood about dyspraxia? We were really so much going out off of an out-of-date information uh, package. It was back when they were still calling it clumsy child syndrome. And I had to get extensive psychological assessments really for them to have anything to base their assessments off of to figure out where I would fit into in the context of special education. And it took a long, long assessment process before people really had any understanding because I didn't have the language for it. My doctors certainly didn't. My parents didn't. She said, like, thing is, you wouldn't have the language for it then as a child. And I guess since your doctors didn't understand it, parents didn't, I guess you find probably now looking back, you wonder how you it was understood then, diagnosed when you you did. And I guess then it could probably be like an impact then and about you had getting support. And like did you find in like some ways when you look back, 
on the like, school life. Did you think the things that would have been a lot easier and a lot helpful if they were in place? Yeah, I mean, I had a lot more support when I was a kid. I was in the special education system. I had extra time on tests and evaluations. But the harder part for me was as I got older because I didn't really have nearly as much to uh, work off of. I was just kind of sprung out to the wider world and people just kind of said, well, good luck, figure it out. I think then that's probably the most difficult t- time when it's like, probably like challenging time for somebody who's even diagnosed as a child. Like, as a young child, as you were saying, you got noticed that you were uh, dyspraxic by the age of four. And like even when you get into like you're becoming an adult then, I think when you even got diagnosis then, it's harder to get like the support to transition between what support you had in school to like finding your way as an adult, as like in that transition period, it's not as much support. Yeah, you know, especially because I have been self-employed for eight years. I haven't had as much like self-employment. The trade-off is like as a disabled person in general, self-employment can be great because you have a lot of control over your time. But the hard part is you don't get access to very immediate programs. You're doing your own thing. I don't think the world has caught up to thinking about disability and access to proper accommodations for self-employed independence, especially. Yeah, as I said, you know, like the world hasn't caught up, you know, like you, you yourself is uh, working for moment, like a lot of people with disabilities don't have the privilege to do that often. And it's like culture of trying to get people back to a workplace and, you know, like work in a traditional office style hours conditions. And that's not very applicable for a person with a disability who may need to be able to choose flexible working conditions due to their needs and based on their needs. What what were the traits and the things, like specifically things in the day-to-day life you found challenging as a child? How did that change into adulthood? I'd say we're like a child, you know, like sometimes those things with sports and when practical skills were doing laces and stuff like that. And like, how do you find those things changed as an adult? When I was a kid, I had a little bit of OT. I had a great OT named Wendy Wallace and she helped me learn how to type. She helped me learn how to grip a pencil without it hurting. She helped me learn how to tie my shoelaces. So she was great, but they're really, how it's changed to now is that like, I don't have as some adulthood motor skills, I feel are so much not there. Like I haven't had proper support for driving. So I'm in my thirties and I, I still don't drive because I can't figure out the instruction part of things. I mean, I've just had to accept there are certain everyday tasks like sewing and cooking and things that I always need a little bit of support and I have to be focused in a very particular way to actually be able to pull it off. As you said, you know, like you was able to get occupational therapy as a child, something I had myself, but still, like I still can't really tie my own shoelaces. There's some things as a child that I could have learned then, that I could still struggle with to do as an adult myself. And 
and I think probably that's the thing, it's like, don't, or like, even though, like, as I say, there's no severity of high functioning, low functioning, like, when he was diagnosed, it was, he was the label severe dyspraxic, probably, like, in a sense, even though there's severe or mild, I think that can impact on developing their skills. When you, like, get an adult, like, sport for like, driving is difficult, certain things, like, so when, and I think, as you was hinting at, when you're trying to get access to occupational therapy, support in like, school and college, or where, when you're an adult, you don't afford that same level of support. Yeah, that's true. But you know, in a way, now that I think of it, many of those things that I had help with, I always find if I'm trying to multitask too much, or if I'm just generally having a bad day, like if I'm under a sense of stress or pressure, it's always like so much harder. I always find these are triggers for feeling like I'm five years old again, and I'm trying to figure out how tying my shoelace works. Yeah, because I think, well, for myself, or like, probably for people who are dyspraxic, it's like that thing, it kind of flares up on like a time when you feel a bit more burnt out or anxious as you were sitting out. Yeah, those are always triggers for making it seem worse. That's where I always find the labeling of all the mild and not mild stuff really complicated because there's not really a simple answer. Talking about the point of not having support for driving and learning to drive and learning the skills that you do as an adult. Is there like things like you think we really need to be like more educated on other people who aren't dyspraxic to understand dyspraxia and help people who are dyspraxic and understand what it is? Yeah, we absolutely do. It's really, it's hard to find people as much. Now I at least find, I remember one of your questions was about like how it changed and all that for, and now I at least find that I can at least have more of a chance of if I want to take a fitness class, if I want to take any sort of new client or whatever, now I at least have a higher chance of someone knowing what dyspraxia is. I, I don't think it's quite there yet. Like it's really, I, I'm used to having to over explain and it's, it's exhausting. I'd say like, it's like hard to explain because for years there's been a confusion with dyslexia, you know, as people say, always oh, do you mean like dyslexia and stuff like that? That can be like, a challenge to understanding and I say like some some traits can be like a bit messy with like the other neurodivergent conditions so there's definitely that confused overlap and I say that still got a place to go but like there's a bit more understanding and I know you've uh, recently wrote, uh, written and published a book do you think that has like done some service trying to explain what dyspraxia is? Yeah I've been um Hearing, I mean, that's the thing about writing a book as opposed to doing a play rather than the movie or a movie is that like often you don't, you feel like you're so much in your own bubble and you're not quite like they're experiencing with people. But from what I have heard, I've been talking to people who got diagnosed late in life or they don't know about it, but they think they might work with someone who does. And it at least helped with understanding it, it at least helped give people some language to explain what it possibly could be. And that's great. Uh, I mean, that's very much why I wrote it. It's uh, is just to dive on my own experience to, I combined 
research and past diary entries and medical records, just talking to people in the neurodivergent community to kind of try to put together some of my own stories, but also some other things I've been hearing in the community to put it into simple English, what it even is. For anybody who hasn't heard the title of the book, can you tell me what the title is? A Stumbling Through Space and Time, Living Life with Dyspraxia. It's not least seen on your social media, you can get in bookstores and like find art online. And so like, what, what was it like finally coming to write a book about like something that is pretty much your life story and informed by your life experiences? Oh, it was hard to put together. I mean, I think the only reason I finished it was because I had the chance to work with a mentor who works at an indie publishing house and he did, offered free mentorship to first-time authors. And he, w- he read some early drafts and I showed it to a lot of people and I was getting a lot of encouragement along the way. And that's the only reason I finished it, but I had to like look at a lot of different sources, a lot of community, a lot of support to actually do it and sit down and find the words for it. You did a lot of research and like kind of compiling a lot of things to give about traits, different experiences and offer whatever dyspraxia. Yeah, dyspraxic people experience and face linking to a lot of what like certain communities have said online and also like I was looking up about when doing some research for this interview and could see that you've been involved in uh, dyspraxic communities online. As you've seen recently there's been a development of certain communities online and you're involved with everyone called Dyspraxia Me and Dyspraxia Legends. Yeah, Dyspraxic Me, um, that's a charity run by a woman named Jessica Starnes. And uh, yeah, she offers it as a peer mentorship uh, program for young adults who are dyspraxic. And she just puts together activities. She puts together fitness activities. She puts together employment workshops, things like that. and her day job is she works in the museum sector. She's been a really good source of making uh, museums and entertainment more accessible to autistic people. She's done a lot of research into that. And I saw an opening to join as a trustee. And I've been hearing a lot about her work. And I went and I did an interview and it, it worked out. And so I've been sitting in on a lot of the Zoom calls. I've been sitting in on a lot of the decisions. And I finally got to go to an event in person this year, which was great because I got to meet all the people that I was involved in making decisions with anyways. And as I said, you know, you also worked on Dyspraxia Legends. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was really a lot of... Uh, neurodivergent activists uh, who were doing their own projects and they were everyone was starting to feel really burnt out and so we really we work together whenever we want to try and uh, do something together we support each other with each other's resources and projects and sometimes we hold social events online so i guess like probably like from those communities i guess has helped you with researching and 
uh, informing the content of the book. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. I've talked to a lot of those people along the way, and uh, they've been really helpful in providing suggestions. Yeah, I guess that and that kind of helped you, uh, like, kind of pile together some ideas for the book. And like, um, you know, when you was writing a book, what what was the experiences you've been hearing about people from uh, with dyspraxia, like certain like challenges with like institutions or you know like institutional uh, systems, like getting support in workplaces or you know like school or like schooling or you know university. It's really mixed. I have a whole, my whole first section is school-based. It goes right from first year of school to university. And then I I have some stuff on joining the workplace and also self-employment as well. Um, I had one on driving. I had one on self-esteem and fitness and body image. And later on, I just go into stuff like disclosing and what that looks like in both platonic and romantic relationships and things like that. So what was the, like, some of the experience you started to, to hear from? What was, like, some of the general feedback you was getting and researching for the book? It was interesting to hear that a lot of the women part of things was that, like, a lot of people, how it affected their own image of how they felt about who they are as a person, how much they felt they could pursue happy relationships or experiences, how much that tied into things. I always thought that used to once just be me, but many of the women I talked to, that was the most top of the list topic for them. I guess it probably was quite helpful to you from other dyspraxic women. As if there's a lot of, when you talk about dyspraxia in this league, you know, there's a lot of it about being said that there's more like boys and men with dyspraxia than there's girls and females, the traditional trope of it, and like how it's generally said. And I guess you find, probably find didn't write in the book, it was great to represent certain things within the dyspraxia community and the dyspraxia experience that you experienced yourself that doesn't often get represented when people talk about dyspraxia oh yeah i learned a lot about myself too and it was amazing too to talk to even just my family what they remember from the early days i i felt like it strengthened my relationship from my with my parents for example who suddenly i understood what they went back they went through back then and i got to hear a little bit more about what it looked like to me and that was incredible Tell me a bit about that experience when you was talking to your parents when you was uh, starting with doing a book and talking about like your childhood diagnosis or like how they saw you growing up as a child and what was their feelings that they said with you. Yes, really it came up because they helped me get all the medical documents and stuff. So it came up where I got to ask about all kinds of different doctors that I didn't remember. I got to ask about really like what going to appointments and them still trying to work was like yeah so I just it, it was great because I got to like more understand the parent side of things I feel like with being on social media I'm used to being very defensive with the parent side of things because there's a lot of negativity but I got to see just like how much they set aside just so that I could get a diagnosis and I could be treated better and that's amazing. 
satisfied, like he was diagnosed in the 90s where there was a less understanding and less public understanding and I guess you kind of felt like you learned a lot about, like I guess a lot of work they probably put into getting a diagnosis, learning themselves of like how it sparks a hypertonia and sensory, sensory processing disorder affects yourself. Learning about that was valuable in learning about Robert's experience as a child and then going up to Spaxic in the 90s. Yeah, and that gave me a real appreciation. And I, I think I understood more about myself and I was more at peace with my own life direction in general. And I was more willing to accept what I couldn't do as much as what I could do, which is great. I'm really pleased for you, lad. You know, like it was able to be like quite cathartic really something that you felt felt like you needed to do then about or something that you've been waiting for a while to do like about hypertonia and like it's something that like, I haven't asked yet can you explain what hypertonia is as some of the podcast listeners maybe not heard of the terms what is hypertonia and how it affects yourself hypertonia basically is it's a muscular and nerve thing where you have sense of weakness they always the doctors always describe it as somewhat of a muscular weakness where you are always having to overcompensate so everybody regardless if they have hypotonia or not is always trying to is always holding in some sense of physical tension in their body whereas someone with hypotonia is very hard to let go of that tension and so that's where like fitness really often comes into the discussion sometimes because at least from a neurological point of view you can train yourself to strengthen certain muscles and combat that muscle weakness. Is that tension and as you said this comes like a challenge with like sporting and you like as you probably found when you was younger maybe like they made you more tense like needing to learn how to use a pencil hold it in a comfortable way and not feel too, too in pain with it between like having the sparks being hypertonic but do you think that like some of it has provided challenges like being in more pain finding it because like we've been dyspraxic and we're having hypertonia on top that's proven more challenges if you had only just a run oh yeah i often find that it's a big part of why chronic pain has been a big part of my life because i never know if i'm gonna sit myself in a position or sleep in a position where i'll get stuck in the in a sense of tension and then the next day I'll be drowsy and it'll be a lot harder to focus and I'll have a bad day where it'll be very difficult to focus, do all the deep thinking work that I do as part of like my work and my life and things. As you say in that hypertonia is that like when muscle is more tense than the, than the average tenseness of a muscle, You'll, as I said, it's like muscle weakness, but it's like you over over tense so like then you can feel the muscle stiffness and then challenges with like moving yourself around and then like especially if like you'd be more fatigued or you like then can get a bit of pain over that so I guess if it has it's also like a muscle condition it's like a chronic pain condition as well yeah that's I mean I think that's what surprised my parents, but the pain part wasn't so much a factor until I got my a lot older and I wasn't really able to 
get away as much with like sitting in a weird position for a long period of time or yeah you know with like having a pink condition like hypertonia like i'm curious whether if you have a condition like that whether like by as you age like it would become more like prominent and more like painful and such because just like Bevan T. Terrivage of the guest. Yeah, I, I would say that really the only way to control it is to find time in my day to exercise. But the thing is, if you're tired, if, if you also have a lot going on with your schedule, if things like that, it's not really as simple as like, of course, I'll go for a walk for 15 minutes today. But at the same time, you that's the one way you can kind of combat against it in a way. But yeah, it's not that simple. And sometimes there really are days where you'll just be in a lot of pain anyways. Perfectly understand that as like, like just end up in more pain days without maybe you like exercise a bit more or not. And I'll say like, but like exercising and then all overdoing it can still, you know, cause a bit more pain. So I guess sometimes just learning how to pace and like manage that uh, feeling. Yeah, pace and also manage time in in such a way that I always have to figure out that I I could be more tired on one day or I have to get up after a certain period of time because I spend so much time in my chair and even then that can be a risk of causing that pain. As we were talking about like being neurodivergent and like touched on some other misunderstanding, lack of understanding for it, what are the key things you're thinking of? What things would you like to see change and change for the better for neurodivergent people and maybe change for the better for for yourself? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of it's about this society image. I think there's been a lot of progress recently where people are talking about neurodiversity more in popular media and culture and stuff like that. But I don't think we're there yet at the right people taking the right actions and having the right level of education. I've done some freelance work with some of the people who train people on working with neurodivergent people. And a lot of the work they do is great, but it's for really corporate jobs. It's for tech jobs. It's for engineering jobs. It's for things like that. So I think a lot of the education needs to be a lot broader for people to feel like they can thrive at work, thrive at school, thrive in all environments, really. The corporate element, you find that you might be an issue with like, only like doing it like a business advantage, profitable and like as a guys for you mean wanting people to understand things and like be educated on a, on a purpose of like wanting to actually help and understand neurodivergent people, not just to like make sure they are just able to get into the workplace, like and just want to do it out of human goodness, is it? Yeah, and also just for more sectors, more more parts of the world to to get more education. Is there any like specific things they would like to see on that type of education? Just to talk to more people with lived experience, to ask more questions, to read more broadly, to watch more videos on the subject. That to me is great, but there's so many people who are thinking very narrow-mindedly about it. That that's going to take a little bit of effort, a little bit of pushing, but we can do it. <laughs> I think we can do it. 
So from that, and as you've been to that lot of consulting work, like from that consultation work, you, you do as it being able to help people understand things from that area? Yeah, many of them are often are people who don't really know anything about autism, who don't know anything about dyspraxia. They have a, quite a narrow view of it. And it's led to some really interesting conversations online with moms of neurodivergent kids and employers and I, I think people are generally taught so little and whenever they hear from people with lived experiences, whenever they hear how we experience the world, they're surprised, but they also too, it shakes them up a bit in a good way. Most of the consultation work you do is like chatting to parents and corporations, is it? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's basically talking about the issues around it, making the resources more accessible and yeah, making it more accessible to a broader audience. What well, like some of the things you've been able to explore throughout your career in that area? Yeah, to provide a few examples, I did some work on a website recently for on some businesses that are working on providing more sensory-friendly attractions to try and raise some awareness of how families could in my hometown they could they could find some accessible movie theaters museums things like that yeah that was one of my more recent projects and i just i've been working on lately for a chronic illness blog a piece on advising people just getting acquainted with sensory processing issues ways they can understand better what that looks like and helping them find the language to say what they need and uh, all the different ways that looks like. Yeah, as you said, like we've done like a piece for sensory processing for a blog like that on chronic illnesses, I guess it's quite important because there's a overlap between sensory processing and chronic illnesses. Yeah, because often there is intersection, there is people either work with that or they or they're just they get that too yeah so a lot of like journalism and like writing seems like to be like inspired and on a basis of doing like more campaigning and understanding of like how to include people with sensory differences and sensory challenges into uh spaces yeah even with the bigger businesses it's the same thing it's it's uh a lot of it is just helping people make sure that like maybe someone might prefer the word autistic or maybe using the word neuroinclusive will only make sense to a broader audience or maybe you should simplify the paragraphs to make them shorter so that it's easier to consume seems like you're doing a lot of good work on like making so like people understand like certain ways of making things lot more accessible. Is there anything else you want to say for this interview? No, I think that's about it. And so like is there anywhere else you people want you want people to find and follow you? Yeah, I mean the big one that people always find me through is my website, uh rosemaryrichings.com. Um I'm on Twitter as Rosemary Rosie May R LinkedIn Rosemary Richings I'm on Facebook too, as Rosemary Richings, and I just recently joined Mastodon. Ah, thanks, thanks for saying that. And I guess with your website, people can find a lot more about your book and a lot more about, you know, like the consultation work as well as 
Like you breaking into little some pieces? Yeah. Um yeah, rosemaryrichings.com is is the the main home. And um I was blogging for a bit at rosywritingspace.com, but I've had to put that on hiatus. Thank you for listening, and as I said, next week on the podcast is Lola Louise Maria. This is the end of the interview. Please, if you want to get in contact with the podcast, find us, me on Instagram at Nero, uh, at Nero uh, Rainbow Project, and you can get that uh, on Facebook and uh, TikTok as well, as well as you can email... Um, Newcast at at aaro That's Newcast at aaro.com. If you got any questions for the podcast, any messages, shout outs, any ideas for what you like for coming up on the podcast. Until next time, have a good, have a good time. Also, maybe just say the podcast, like get many people to follow to this if you like it. Give positive reviews and keep saving it and make sure this podcast can grow more listeners. Thanks.